Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my professors I had several years ago was a man by the name of Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. Dr. Montgomery is one of the most brilliant and most learned individuals I have ever met. He has something like 10 doctorate degrees in all various topics, including a doctorate of theology and a doctorate in jurisprudence. He has been certified to argue cases before both the United States Supreme Court and the European Court of Human Rights. And I share all that with you because he, at one point in his illustrious career, among the many of things he studied and kind of determined through research and reason, was that when I've shared with you on several occasions that there are only two religions in the world, the religion of grace and the religion of the law, and have set before you that indeed Christianity is the only religion of, the, of grace, he's actually proved that to be true. Of the thousands of religions in the world, he's examined each one. He said, well, there was kind of one over in Japan that seemed to be based in grace. When he finally delved into it and looked at their actual theology and tenets of the faith, it too came to be that at the end, you were saved by works. Paul is emphatic that we are saved by grace. Of course, we know the words he said to the Ephesians where he lays that out explicitly. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ and not of works, lest anyone should boast. Yet here to, to the Galatians, he also is laying forth that point clearly. If we go a couple verses before where our reading starts, he addresses the Galatians with these words. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul repeats over and over again, how we are saved by grace through faith. For the righteous shall live by faith, he tells the Romans, and again here to the Galatians, referring to the fact that Moses himself indicated that when Abraham was given the promise of the Messiah, that through his seed the nations would be blessed, and that indeed his actual descendants would be as numerous as the stars, that Abraham believed the word of the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The law is not a faith. The law is laid forth very clearly. It is black and white. Do this and you shall live, Jesus tells the attorney, the lawyer who would test him by asking him that question, who is my neighbor? Jesus constantly is putting forth that we are called to live a life of righteousness. Be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect, he tells us. There is indeed a reality. There is a truth that if you were able to keep the law perfectly, 
If, like our Lord himself, from the moment of your conception to the moment you were called home by our Heavenly Father, you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loved your neighbor as yourself without exception, you would earn that spot in heaven. But who is able, save for our Lord himself, none of us are. Oh, to be sure, Adam and Eve had the ability at first. They had the ability to love God with their whole heart, soul, and mind. They could love their neighbor as themselves, but they threw it all away when they gave up on loving God and instead tried to love Satan, tried to go his route, wanting that which God had prevented them from having, thinking that what God kept from them was a blessing when all it was was a curse. And exactly that is what they got. When they relied on the words of Satan who said, go and do, eat, take, do what you want, cursed are those who rely on the law. Because we are unable we have lost that ability and it has been ripped from us. Not by God, not by Adam or Eve, but by our own actions. Insofar as we are all from the line of Adam and Eve. All who rely on the law are cursed under the law because we are unable to keep the law. Which is why we give thanks today that in an abundance of mercy, in an overflowing amount of love, God sent forth his Son to redeem us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He who kept the law became a curse for us. He allowed himself to be taken to that cross. He submitted to the will of his Father. He loved the Father with all his heart, soul, and mind even to the point of death and death on the cross. And a new covenant was established. A covenant which had been promised first to Adam and Eve, affirmed to Abraham, and ratified on the cross. For a covenant, a testament is that which we still have today. It is a legally binding agreement that one puts forth while they are living, that takes effect at the moment of their death. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life. That is the covenant. And as our Lord stretched out his hands on the cross of Calvary, the covenant was ratified and became effective with his, with his resurrection. He died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And we have life. The other covenant is still in effect was given by God himself initially to Adam and Eve. Do not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden of Eden. For the day you eat of it, dying, you shall surely die. But these covenants, though they both promise life, are about as different, and indeed are as different, as the night is from the day, as are far apart as the east is from the west. The covenant of the law is clear, as I've shared. Jesus affirmed it to the lawyer. Moses declared it in Leviticus. Therefore, keep my statutes, the Lord says, and you will live. 
But to Abraham, it was declared that the seed would bring peace to the nations. And Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteousness. The religion of the law, the religion of the gospel. What saves you? Who saves you? Your works? Yourself? By no means. Your salvation, your place in the kingdom of God, your standing as a child of God is his work and his work alone. He brought you to the font. He gave you his spirit. He quickened your faith. He raised you from the dead. He brought you through judgment. He has written your name in the book of life. And thanks be to God, it's not dependent on us. Because like fragile China, we would break the merest bump. And indeed we have. For we don't just bump against the law. We run roughshod right through it. What's truly amazing and what Paul points out is something which is actually counterintuitive. Because he talks also about the difference of their importance. It would seem logical that the old covenant was older than the new covenant. But the amazing truth Paul puts forth is it is exactly the opposite. That it is the new covenant which actually predates the old covenant. And how is this? Because the promise was given to Abraham. And it was four centuries, over four centuries later. When finally God brought Moses to Mount Sinai and handed him the tablets, written in the hand of God indeed, at least the first set, listing out what it was that we were called to do that we would live. Not only was the new covenant older than the old covenant for when it was put forth, but who brought it forth this also shows the difference of importance. God brought the covenant through Moses. He brought him to Sinai. It was through a man, one who had to veil himself when he came down because the glory was too great for the people to see, who shone with the light of God, and the people were afraid. Just as, and maybe even more so, than when they stood at the mountain and the thunders and the lightnings shook and rattled Mount Sinai. The law came through Moses, through an intermediary, through a man, and one who, the scriptures are quite clear, was a sinful man. Who was one who raged against his brother, who took a life out of turn, who didn't even circumcise his own children, though that was the law, at least not until the angel of death threatened him, and who was kept from the promised land, only able to see it from on high and not enter it directly at least not the promised land on earth. In converse, and to show that it is far greater. As John points out in the first chapter of his gospel, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, the one who is God and who was with God, the one who by whom and for whom and through all things were made. God himself brought the new covenant took on flesh to dwell among us, to bring it personally, to bring it intimately, to bring it one-on-one. -on -one. He sat with sinners. He ate with tax collectors. He raised up the fallen. And even today, it's why the church is established and why pastors are called. 
so that that word of God still comes to us personally and individually. And though I am, yes, an intermediary, I bring the message that came from God himself into this world, and far greater is it. So then why the law? If indeed, as we have been, we are saved by grace through faith and not by our own works, why worry about the law? What is the purpose of these commandments? Why not just do away with the old, with the old covenant? Especially when it doesn't appear to help us. You know in your catechism, the three uses that are traditionally given, the first two stem from our reading today, among other places. And we'll touch on the third use next week as we look at Galatians 5. But he begins with these two purposes. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. What does he mean by that? Well, simply put, I don't think I have to give too many illustrations about what happens when you take away the law. We live in a, in a year where apparently it's commonplace and good to say we don't need police. We can just pull them back and see what happens. Well, look around us. It doesn't lead to peace and tranquility. It leads to a flourishing of sin. Because of our sins, because of what happens when the law is gone, God puts the law in place. To the Romans, Paul put it this way. The governor does not hold the sword in vain. There is a very important place for law in our society. It's why we have governors. It's why we have police. It's why we have the military. Because anarchy, if it could truly exist, is the most horrid of governments. Simply put, and I don't say this lightly, but it would be far better to live under the Nazi regime or the communist regime or the Chinese regime than to live in complete and utter anarchy. And those are some of the most atrocious governments that have ever existed. The law is in place to limit sin. It is that curb because of the threat of the sword. But there's a second reason. And Paul goes on. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels and a mediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The second use, and as our confessions put forth and as Paul declares here, is the greater use. The law, the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. What does that mean? That by adding the law, the Ten Commandments, God sharpened the mirror of the law. You know, the law did exist all the way back to the garden. We know that command. It was there. Yet what happened? We saw throughout Genesis how man eventually started ignoring the law. His conscience was dimmed. Until you get to the day of Noah when everyone is evil, no one regards the word of God save a few. 
Moses brings forth the law and it sharpens it. And if you think the law is of no consequence, remember this, that 1,500 years later, our Lord himself sharpened the law even more and made it brighter. Look through Matthew 6. You've heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I tell you, he who looks at a woman and lusts after her in his heart has already sinned. You've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, he who hates his brother and is angry with him unjustly has already sinned. That law is a harsh thing, and it is necessary in our life. It curbs our sinfulness. It shows us our sinfulness. And as we'll hear next week, it even provides the picture of what it looks like and what we are called to do to walk in the Spirit. Yet at the end of the day, the law's place is as a, as a placekeeper to hold us, to prepare us for that much more glorious message. It prepares us to hear the gospel. It breaks us down. It throws us to our knees that like Peter, we cry out, Lord, have mercy. And he does. He shed his blood for you. He's washed you of your sins. Come now and be strengthened by him. Receive that gift again. Receive his body and blood and live. Why then the law? It prepares us for that greater covenant of salvation and grace. Thanks be to God, now and always. Amen. And we rise. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.